Well, good morning. As I look out over you, you're a good-looking crowd. My name is Jared, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm glad to be standing here this morning. Although the brights are very light from this, or the, they're bright from this perspective here. So I'd like to welcome you as we continue our mini-series on work, more specifically work as worship. And this will be our third message. Uh, Pastor Chris will bring at least one more, possibly two, depending on how the Spirit works in his heart. Uh, He isn't here this morning. He and his family are in Minnesota, out visiting family and friends, and he should be here next week. So I say this word, Pacera glabella. You're wondering, what in the world? I mean, apparently scientific names are in vogue now. Um, It's called Crestleaf groundsel. And uh, this would be that yellow weed that you've all been seeing out in the fields this spring as you're driving around. Normally you don't see it uh, this late, but uh, it's quite common to no-till cornfields. And I say that because two weeks ago, Justin taught us that work was God's idea and that through our work we create beauty and cultivate order. You see, as soon as the weather allows, the local farmers will certainly be cultivating order in their fields with Roundup or even a field cultivator. I thought I would bring attention. I learned a new word, what, two weeks ago, hysteronicus, hysteronicus, right? Do you guys remember that? And it it apparently is a scientific name of a common wild duck. Well, curiosity got the best of me, so I went and searched, and I think I found it. (laughs) And, um, but unfortunately, it turns out it wasn't all that it was quacked up to be. Sorry, teenagers, those are bad dad jokes. That was just for you, Noah. I mean, you're shaking your head. So last week, we learned from Pastor Scott that sin changed the nature of our work. And work is hard. He said it very passionately, by the way. Work is hard. Because work is hard, our efforts are exhausting, our motives are misguided, and our coworkers are corrupt. I like it. John MacArthur sums it up nicely. He said we went from being flower arrangers to plow horses. And that resonates with me. I I grew up in Pennsylvania uh, in and amongst an Amish community. And I tell you what, every spring this was a common sight to see in the fields as the Amish would be out early uh, plowing. And it was very common that these horses would be worked up to a lather because it was hard work. And I bet you, Ed, you're glad that you have a tractor for this these days, right? So when I think about something being hard, I I think back to the 1986 iconic movie Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And in the opening scenes, if you've ever seen this, right, he's trying to convince his parents that he can't go to school. Now, none of you try this, okay? And... He says, and I quote, they bought it, incredible, one of the worst performances of my career, and they never doubted it for a second. How could I possibly be expected to handle school on a day like this? 
This is my ninth sick day this semester, and it's getting pretty tough coming up with a new illness. You see, because work is hard, we tend to become disillusioned and find ourselves in the same position as Mr. Bueller. We're looking for a ways to escape, take the day off, looking for sunny and 75. Or in the words of a Steve Azar song, I don't have to be me till Monday, he sings, and Jackson, please do not sing. So I called into where I work, told a little white lie. No, my back doesn't really hurt, but that's my alibi. My temporary ticket to anywhere but here. I don't have to be me till Monday. See, human nature tends to shy away from things that are hard, like work. I always like to say that we're like water, always seeking or looking for the path of least resistance. I was talking to the Reverend John Mulligan III, and he said, you know, we work hard at trying not to work. Well, just ask a parent who's frustrated because their kids drag their feet when it comes to folding the laundry or mowing the yard. I mean, that never happens at our house. I'm just saying, hypothetically. So today, we're going to talk about some positive aspects of work. The title of today's message is Love Your Work. It's a little bit of a play on words. And we're going to continue with our theme, Work as Worship, but in the context of relationships. You see, our love for God should motivate our love for work, and then we use that to love others. So how many of you have heard of the children's magazine called Highlights? I don't know. Okay. It's a little, it, you know, it was one of these, it was started back in the 1940s by Gary and Carolyn Myers, and it's, it's rather, it's, I think it's still being published today. Um, and their tagline was, fun with a purpose. And we always had these floating around. They were ancient when I was looking at them in the 70s and 80s. But I remember that they always had some regular features that they maintained throughout the years. There were like jokes and riddles and puzzles and crafts, hidden pictures and cartoons. And two cartoons that are memorable to me are the Timber Toes, right? Yes, I hear yes, and Goofus and Gallant. Anybody remember Goofus and Gallant? Okay, Val does, right? <laughs> and highlights, yes, the highlights of Goofus and Gallant. So Goofus always represented a poor response, and Gallant always represented a right response. So why do I say that? Well, so today's outline is going to be three points from Luke chapter 10. So point one is the highlights, right, telling us what we need to do. Point two is don't be a Goofus. That's easy, right? Don't be a Goofus. And point three is be a Gallant. Right, so we're going to contrast these two individuals. This brings us to point one, the highlights. Let's turn to Luke chapter 10 again in your, word of, in your copy of the Word of God. We're going to read uh, verses 25 through 29. Now, I use the NASB. That's what I've settled on, so mine's going to be a little bit different, but follow along as I read. And a lawyer stood up and put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And the lawyer answered, Well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. 
And he said to him, Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, the lawyer said to Jesus, but who's my neighbor? Well, this passage is a dialogue between Jesus and a lawyer who was skilled in the Mosaic Law. By standing up, the lawyer was taking really an assertive or an aggressive position with really ulterior motives that we'll see here in a second. But we see that Jesus took a potentially confrontational situation and he used it for good. So he used questions, he asked good questions and a story to redirect the conversation to a teachable moment. You see, the lawyer, a guy like this, was no slouch, right? He knew the word of God, and he was swinging for the fence, and he was skilled in the law, and he went right to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, that reads, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. You see, to a devout Jew, this was considered one of the most important laws because it was It was talking about having a right relationship with God. If you remember, Deuteronomy chapter 6 was given to the Israelites so that future generations would remember and be obedient to God. These verses would have been recited at least twice daily by a devout Jew. And obviously a lawyer would know these verses and know how to use them. But isn't it ironic that the truth escaped this guy based on his response to Jesus, trying to correct him by standing? You see, the second part of the lawyer's response is called the second greatest commandment, and that's found in Leviticus chapter 19, and it reads, You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So if you take these two verses from the ones from Deuteronomy and the ones from Leviticus, they really go hand in hand nicely with Matthew chapter 7, verse 12 that says, In everything, therefore treat people the same way you want them to treat you. And we call this the golden rule. So basically, the whole law is summed up in these two points, right? God and people. Paul writes in Galatians 5.4, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, or in this statement. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So I don't know if you remember, but Pastor Don Jennings, when he was here, he preached the message on these verses. And I always remember his outline, because it was really easy. And it's actually one that I use a lot. So point one was... Love God. And any guess on the second one, point two? Love people, right? Love others. That's right. I remember having a conversation with Chuck Johns some time ago where I was sharing with him some of the rules that we have at our house and some of the expectations we have for college students. And his response has stuck with me because he said, teach your kids to love Jesus. Isn't that the most important thing? I thought, yeah, that is the most important thing. So I say thank you, Chuck, for that simple reminder. 
You see, the way we love God will determine how we view others and respond to them and ultimately determine how we work. You see, our lives, right, we can be just like the lawyer. Our lives are full of responses. We really do, as humans, respond to something or someone every day. You see, life is about relationships and people. In fact, we don't go a day without responding to people, and for that matter, even God. So in order to understand how we respond to others, let's just take a quick example, or take a quick look at Jesus' example. So Jesus really set the example by loving the Father. We have a few verses here. So John 4, and Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. In John 6, 38, he says, For I have come from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And then John 14, he says, I will not speak much more to you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. So here we see Jesus, right? He came to do the will of the Father out of love. And because of that, then, Jesus showed his love to us. John 3.16 is a classic verse, right? So God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John 10.14 and 15 read, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for my sheep which then goes nicely with Romans 5.8, which says, but God demonstrates his love for us, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Right? So we see that Jesus came to do the will of the Father out of love, and in the process, he loved us. And then what did he do? Like any good teacher, right? He encouraged us to love others. So John 15 says, this is my commandment that you what? Love one another, just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And this command I give you, that you love one another. And then 1 John 5, the first two verses say, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and observe his commandments. So do you see the progression here in these verses? Jesus loved the Father and came to do his will. The will of the Father was that the Son lay down his life, which the Son did, and then Jesus asked us to do the same by loving God and others. Which brings us to the question, well, who's my neighbor? Right? I, Probably we all think of that question in a kind of a narrow view, right? Like, well, our neighbor would be those that live next door or maybe across the street or maybe even those in our neighborhood or subdivision. But it's hard to imagine that those that live in Fayette, nor Fayette is up the road, right, or Lafayette or even Chicago as being our neighbors, could that be true? So the rest of this parable then answers the question, who's my neighbor? 
So if I had to summarize this point, the highlights, it would be this. The two greatest commandments tell us to love God and love people. As believers, this serves as our job description that helps determine the way we work. So this brings us to point two. Don't be a goofus. Turn with me in in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10 again, and we're going to read verses 30 through 32. And Jesus replied and said, now he's telling a parable. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. And they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So here we see two individuals, a priest and a Levite, who, who really were in their daily routine of life. And they were presented with an opportunity to love their neighbor, who happened to be a fellow Jew nonetheless. In the context, they very well could have been on their way to or from work at the temple. And we would expect the priest and the Levite to stop and help, right? I mean, after all, weren't they entrusted with the well-being of others and really shouldn't they have known this responsibility? Plus, right, if you're a good Jew, you would have recited your verses from Deuteronomy and Leviticus earlier in the day. Hebrews chapter 5 Verses 1 through 4 tell us kind of what a priest is supposed to be doing, right? Because we see a priest and a Levite. It says, For every high priest taking from among men is appointed on behalf of men to what? To things pertaining to God, in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins, so that what? So he can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he himself also is beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people, and also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. You see, for reasons we'll look at shortly, these two guys failed to stop and show love. The wounded man was slighted by his friends, right? Jew, other Jews. Because you see, according to a Jew... A neighbor was any member of the Hebrew nation or commonwealth. But you see, the law, the law of love was just not written on their hearts that day. In Matthew 23, verse 23, we read, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, which are justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You see, Christ chastised religious leaders numerous times for what? Wrong attitudes and wrong priorities. After all, the men laying by the road could have been completely dead instead of mostly dead. Some of you get that. The prince's bride. Had he been completely dead... Any interaction would have made the priest and the Levite unclean, right, according to the law. So what'd they do? They crossed to the other side. Ask somebody else to do it. 
They were more interested in preserving the legal cleanliness according to the law, but you know what they did? They transgressed the second commandment about loving your neighbor. They saw an opportunity to show love and mercy, and they avoided it. Kind of like a double standard. So you may be asking, well, how in the world does this apply to work? Well, you've asked a good question. Because we, like the religious leaders, are on our way to or from work every day. You see, work is where we spend a lot of our lives, right? Hours and hours of our lives where we spend energy, time, talent, resources, abilities. You know, our culture tends to think that there's a distinction between ministry and work or ministry and employment. In the case of this parable, the spiritually and supposedly religious profession, the professional religious people, were even indifferent to putting their faith into practice, which is ironic given that they were potentially, right, in, the, in, in real life, if this had to happen in real life, right, on their way to or from serving in ministry. But before we cast too many stones, right, don't, don't we do the same thing at times? We're like, we can be like a Levite or a priest, right? Come up with good excuses of walking right past a hurting neighbor or neglecting them. You see, it's easy for us to separate the secular from the spiritual. Kind of like checking our faith at the door at work. Kind of like separation of church and state, right? Because after all, right, we're supposed to have this clear delineation in life. You, you, you do spiritual things on Sunday at church, but when you leave and you go to work, right, you check your faith at the door. I mean, after all, I'm paid to do a job, not proselytize or witness or live my faith out loud. J.D. Greer in his book, Gaining by Losing, writes this. says, there is a widespread myth in the church that calling into ministry is a secondary experience that happens to only a few privileged Christians. We believe that God takes the spiritual elite and entrusts them with ministry. And for everyone else, their duty is to show up faithfully at the events planned by the ministers and foot the bill. But we learned from the Protestant Reformation that there was a removal of the walls between sacred work and secular work, between the clergy and the laity, the working man, Martin Luther helps us understand that there's really no distinction between sacred and secular work. I mean, work is work. And we're all on equal footing regarding our work. You see, the great equalizer as believers is our identity in Christ. And you can read anywhere in the New Testament, right? Christians are referred to as priests, prophets, ambassadors, kings, heirs, etc. But today we're just going to focus on three. First, we're referred to as priests. Believers are referred to as priests in 1 Peter chapter 2. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that what? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
So that's his priest, right? So that we can proclaim the excellencies of Christ. We're also referred to as prophets from Ephesians chapter 4. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature men to a measure and stature which belong to the fullness of God. So we're referred to as priests, prophets, and ambassadors. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we can become the righteousness of God in him. So why do I give you these verses? Well, because based on these verses, can we compartmentalize our service to others based on what hat we're wearing, whether it's sacred hat on Sunday or the secular hat during the work week? According to Scripture, we are to serve in these capacities first. Right? This is who we are in Christ. This is how Christ views us. I submit that we serve as priests, prophets, and ambassadors, and kings, and so forth, right? In any employment, in any job, in any work. See, according to Ephesians 2.10, it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. We are do- see, we are doing the works of Jesus while employed, by an earthly master. It is through our work that we love our neighbor. We should love our work and remain faithful to our work because work is God's work. All work is God's work. So if I have to summarize this point, point two, it's work is not, right? Work is not what? Religious, right? Look at the two religious guys that walked right by or it's not proud, or selfish, or indifferent, or uncaring. It's not too busy or removed. Let's not be like Karl Marx, who according to Kent Hughes, was a self-proclaimed defender of the working class people, which they called the proletariat. Interestingly enough, he didn't even have a friend who belonged to that class of people, right? Or in a more recent example of a double standard, don't eat the burger if you hate the cows. In other words, don't be a goofus. Don't walk by opportunities to love your neighbor and to what? Do good work. Helping your neighbor is good work. So that brings us to the third point, which is be a gallant. Be a gallant. Let's look again at your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 10. And we're going to read verses 33 through 37. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. He came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. 
which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And the lawyer said, well, the one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said to him, well, go and do the same. Here we see now another individual, third individual, who was a Samaritan. And a Samaritan would have been a mortal enemy with the Jews. But interestingly enough, right, the Samaritan stopped and helped the Jew. The Samaritan wouldn't be considered a neighbor, but he stopped. Why? Because he had compassion. So this word is interesting. This is a very strong word. And it, it means it's a, it's a strong desire to be moved to one's, now, now pardon me when I say this, but one's intestines or one's in bowels, to feel it like in your inner core, like compassion, like a strong feeling. So anytime we see this word compassion in, in the New Testament in regards to Christ, it was in this same context, right? He had compassion, a very strong emotion, a strong conviction in your inner being, right? Obviously, he was the one make, giving the story or the parable because, right, Christ had compassion towards what? Multitudes of people. All, we always see this, multitudes of people or what? Individuals, sufferers, people who were suffering. In verse 36, Christ asked this lawyer, lawyer well, which of the three acted as a neighbor? Well, his answer was a Samaritan, we read. You see, this is significant because Christ's definition of a neighbor was any other person, irrespective of race or religion, with whom we live or whom we chance to meet. In other words, Christ's expectation of who a neighbor was is anybody that we meet or come in contact with. So what do we learn from this Samaritan? Well, we read that he too was on his way somewhere and would be returning. However, he took time from his schedule to tend to a neighbor. It cost him something. We see that it cost him time, right? Because he had to haul the guy to the inn and take care of him. It cost him money. And in today's culture, right? I mean, if we're delayed, what is it costing us? Opportunity. Well, then why did he do it? Well, Christ was getting at that we assume that he loved God and therefore he loved those whom he encountered. So I propose that work is our opportunity to be a Samaritan to others and extend grace to the world. Hugh Welchel, in his book, writes, Common grace is the means by which Christians serve the common good of their neighbors and transform the culture. We bear the responsibility to redeem not only personal souls, but entire cultures. Common grace is a tool given by God that should not be neglected. Right? So here we see the Samaritan showing common grace to this Jewish person. Chuck Colson, before he passed away, wrote, God cares, only a, God cares not only about redeeming souls, but also about restoring his creation. He calls us to be agents not only of his saving grace, but also his common grace. Our job is not only to build the church, but also build a society to the glory of God. As agents of 
God's common grace, right, ambassadors, we are called to help sustain and renew his creation, to uphold the created institutions of family and society, to pursue science and scholarship, to create works of art and beauty, and to heal and help those suffering from the results of the fall. In other words, be a Samaritan. You know, when we meet somebody for the first time, it's always, you know, in our culture, we shake their hands, and then it inevitably goes to, well, what do you do, or what's your job, or where are you employed, right? It's, it's, it's a way to make small talk. The reality of it is, right, I guess we're asking, well, what's your vocation? What's your call in life? I would say that our vocation, whether secular or sacred, is where God puts us. It's where he calls us in order to what? Care for our neighbors and bless the world. But I do want to clarify something. You know, sometimes we may find ourselves in a job or employed at a place that, you know, we don't even feel called or we don't even like. That happens to all of us occasionally, right? You can identify with that. But can I encourage you to remember that you are first employed by Christ, right? We talked about being priests, ambassadors, prophets, kings. You are employed by Christ in those positions. You see, I'm reminded of the church in Corinth from these verses in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 that says, in a great deal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging with us with much urging for the favor and the participation and the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. Here we had a hurting group of believers who were begging to serve others. So I say, give yourself first to the Lord's work and serve faithfully in the position that you're at until God leads you someplace else. You know, I'm reminded of Colossians chapter 3. We all know this verse, right? Slaves. And boy, sometimes we feel like that, don't we? It says, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth not with external service as those who merely please men, but with a sincerity of heart, what? Fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance. And get this, right? It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. I'd already mentioned the Reformation a bit earlier, but I want to take you back and spend a little more time and share some of the theology that emerged during this time. So we're talking, what, 500 years ago? See, prior to the Reformation, there was a clear distinction in work between those who served in secular work and those who served in um, sacred work. In other words, sacred work were those who served in the church. And that, w- that work was really to be elevated where secular work was to be tolerated, right? You're the guys who just earned the money to keep the society going. But it was during that time that Martin Luther and uh, John Calvin helped us understand and formulate our thinking on work. So let's start with Martin Luther. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter uh, 4, verses 8 through 11, and then we're going to see what he wrote about those in his commentary. So let me read these verses. It says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. 
because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employed in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as the one serving by the strength which God supplies. So then in all things, God may be glorified through Christ Jesus, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Okay, those are the verses. And here is what Calvin, or excuse me, Martin Luther wrote. It says, the gospel wants everyone to be the other person's servant. In addition, to see that he remains in the gift, the gift here referring to the job that the Lord has given you, which he has received, which God has given you. That is, in a position to which he has called. One person should serve the other person spiritually from the heart. Even if you are in a high position and a great Lord, yet you should employ your power for the purpose of serving your neighbor with it. Thus, everyone should regard himself as a servant. The same thing applies to all stations in life. He wrote a book called The Freedom of a Christian, and here's what he wrote. Here's an excerpt. He says, A man does not live for himself alone in this mortal body to work for it alone, but he lives also for all men on earth. Rather, he lives only for others and not himself. I will therefore give myself as a Christ to my neighbor, just as Christ offered himself to me. I will do nothing in this life except what I see as necessary, profitable, and salutary to my neighbor, since through faith I have an abundance of all good things in Christ. Okay, that was Martin Luther. Let's see what John Calvin has to write. He says, Wherefore, regarding the whole process of regeneration or salvation, it is not without cause that we are called God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them quoting Ephesians 2.10. And this not merely to a single day, but to the whole course of our vocation, right? He's saying our whole life, our whole job. And he continues, we serve our neighbor and are in turn served by them. You see, work is a bond that unites people together, gives us opportunities with one another. He even wrote this about the Holy Spirit's influence on our lives for our work. He said, even the artisan with the humblest trade is good at, at, good at it only because the Holy Spirit of God works in him. For though, the skiffs are, for though these gifts are diverse, they all come from the one spirit. It pleased God to distribute them to each one. This does not refer only to the spiritual gifts that follow regeneration, but to all the sciences which concern our use of the common life, meaning the skills that we have in life, including our spiritual gifts, are given to us by God. So let me finish Kelvin's thoughts with this. He said, on the contrary, we know that men were created for the express purpose of being employed in labor of various kinds, and that no sacrifice is more pleasing to God then when every man applies himself diligently to their calling and endeavors to live in such a manner as to contribute to the general advantage. 
So to summarize this point three, good work is, as opposed to point two, good work is not. Point three, good work is what? Loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, good, gentle, faithful. Our work should extend grace to others and benefit our neighbor. So you know what came to my mind? We should be like a State Farm commercial. Like a good neighbor, right? A Jesus follower is there, right? So be a gallant for Jesus, right? Be like a Samaritan. So where do we go from here? I mean, what does this mean for me today, June 2nd, which I can't believe it's June already? You see, every day we're presented with an opportunity to interact with people, our neighbors. We will either act like goofus or gallant. When we go to work, we'll either squander time or we'll take advantage of it. You know, God told the lawyer, he said, hey, go and do likewise. Well, you know what? For this lawyer, it was an impossible thing for him to do on his own. But you see, it is through the gospel that our hearts are changed, that we can love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. See, only a transformed life can go and do likewise. As we see in Matthew 25, and I referenced this this morning during Life Group, but I want to draw your attention back to Matthew 25, verses 35 through 40. It says, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick. You visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him and say, But Lord, when did we see you hungry and give you something to eat? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. And finally, I'd say, you know what? It's plant season. Well, not really, but we'll use that context, right? Plant, grow where God plants you, right? We've all been planted in a community and a place and time. You see, it is through our day-to-day work that we love our neighbor and we really impact our culture. I say that everything that we do in life can be considered work, from doing the dishes, mowing the yard, changing diapers, that was work, running a business or even governing a nation. See, our goal is to love Jesus and love people. And in doing these things, what do we do? We seek the peace and prosperity and welfare of our city, of our neighborhood, with our neighbors. See, work is the avenue by which we accomplish these things. As we finish, I want to draw your attention to Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 through 9. We all know Jeremiah 29, 11, but these are the preceding verses, and I thought they were very applicable. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, 
He writes, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters. And take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. Then he says, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And what? Pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will have welfare. So I say we have lots of opportunities, don't we? To be a neighbor, to make wise choices, to show love, to work hard. These things all bring glory to God. You know, as we go to communion, I want to, I want to reflect on 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. It says, For I delivered to you as of first importance, which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Romans 8, 11 says, But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. You see, it is through this power that a follower of Jesus can love God, love people, and go and do likewise. Perhaps you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus. We urge you to receive the grace of God. For God says, at the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. In Romans, the scripture also says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches on all who call on him. And it says, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So we practice open communion here. And if you are a follower of Jesus, we urge you to participate. But if you are not a follower of Jesus, we urge you to take this opportunity to make this the day of salvation. Would you bow with me in prayer? Lord, thank you for this time that we could spend in your word looking at Luke chapter 10 on what it means to love you and love our neighbor and the expectations that you've given us. Lord, someday we're all going to stand before you and we're going to give an account for how we worked, for how we loved you, how we loved our neighbors. Lord, that's very sobering. So Lord, thank you that you have redeemed us. Even though work is hard, we can go forth because it is your work. Help us to go with good attitudes and right spirits. Lord, as we leave this place, I pray that we would not check our faith at the door, but that we would carry it with us, that we would make a difference, that we would help redeem the culture, that our hard work would be evident because we're working for you. Lord, help us to be kind and compassionate and considerate even to one another here, that we would love each other and encourage each other and strengthen each other so that when we leave, we would run the race that you set before us and do it well. 
We commit these things to you, Lord, in your name. Amen.